Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber. Listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. Pastor Jonathan Mason here, uh, and I want to say to you on this Sunday afternoon that God is amazing. Uh, this has been an outstanding week uh, for. Frankfurt, you know, our station is located in the community of Frankfurt, uh, and I've got a huge announcement on the way uh, about some things that we're going to be doing in Frankfurt. I got the news this week. Uh, we've been working on this for over a year, and I'm excited. I know you're saying to yourself, he's teasing us. Tell us now. No. I want to wait and do it right way. It might actually do a show around what we're about to do. Uh, so I just need you to get ready. And here's what I really want you to do. Just, just, just put it in prayer. You don't need to know what we're doing in order to put it in prayer and ask God for it to be a success. Uh, we, we, we are looking to address some real serious needs here in the community. And we got some great news this week. I'm excited. I'm excited. But listen, we're here this afternoon uh, to provide you with some great content, and I'm excited about that. Uh, I did a little research on a young lady this week by the name of Alice Rivlin. I had not in the past heard of her, but I saw that in the month of October— uh, there was a book release that she started working on before she passed in May of 2019. Uh, it's called Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. And, and here's what really intrigued me uh, about this book. As I shared, she was not complete with the book when she passed. But what happened is her son and her daughter-in-law picked up the mantle and completed the book for her. Uh, Alice Rivlin was a member uh, of the Brookings Institute, a part of the Brookings community for over 60 years. Uh, when she passed away, uh, folks like Bill Clinton, Diane Feinstein, a federal board chair who she served with as vice chair, Jerome Powell, all had wonderful things to say about her. So I wanted to learn more not only about her, but about this book and about her thoughts on Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. So I want to welcome into the pastor's office this afternoon uh, her son, her son, Mr. Alan Rivlin. Alan, come on in the pastor's office. Welcome, my friend. Well, thank you. Let me pull up a chair. <laughs> 
Well, listen, here's what I want to do first. Why don't you do me a favor? I, I read the bio. I've, I've looked at uh, Wikipedia. I've, I've Googled uh, your mother's name. But, but nobody can speak about their mother better than their children. Uh, so why don't you tell our listeners here at Philly's Favor a little bit about your mom? Well, if, if she were here, she'd say, oh, shucks, it's all an exaggeration. But since she's my mom, I can brag on her. <laughs> That's right. Uh, she was a remarkable person. Uh, and I heard you call her a young lady, and that would delight her so much. She passed away at the age of 88 in 2019. Uh, and um, she, she, she left a life of accomplishment that is worth bragging about. Uh, back in 1974, uh, she got chosen to be the first head of the Congressional Budget Office. So from 1975 to 1983, she was the, the, the founding director of the CBO. And she first came to national attention when Ronald Reagan came into office, and she testified representing the CBO that his numbers didn't add up. And so that's sort of how she got a reputation of speaking truth to power. She was very short. Uh, she was, I don't know, uh, let's, let's say she was between five, two and five, four. Okay. Um, cause she's probably listening now, so I don't want to, <laughs> you know, she's five, two. Um, <laughs> but, uh, after that, she went on to be Clinton's budget director and, uh, then she was the vice chair of the federal reserve. Um, she also, uh, in the period when Obama was president, there were two different commissions named to try to come up with strategies to balance the federal budget. One of them was the Simpson-Bowles Commission, and the other one was the Domenici-Rivlin Commission, which she was the chair of. So she served on both of them. She was the only person to serve on both of them. And they both came up with, uh, with solutions to our, our budget deficit that did not involve too much pain for any group. The, the the tax increases, the revenue increases were done without tax rate increases, and the um, spending reductions were done um, uh, largely by controlling spending for health care in the ways that eventually became part of uh, the, the Obamacare system. Um, it, it didn't pass because the economy wasn't broken. As she used to say, it was politics that was broken, and uh, that's really why she decided to write Divided We Fall. Wow, wow, wow. As I always say, uh, when when I read the bios of uh, many uh, whose funerals, unfortunately, I have to preach or attend, I always say a life well lived. Your mother had a life that was well lived. And, and so she was writing this book, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters, uh, before her passing in May of 2019. Here's, here's the part I really uh, want to dig into first. You and your wife completed the work. Uh, what drove you and your wife to step in and complete a work that, that your mother started? Well, my wife, uh, Sherry Rivlin, uh, is sitting right next to me in the pastor's office here. She's waving. Hello, Sherry. Um, How are you? <laughs> she says she's fine. She can't hear you, but I can hear both of you. Okay. Um, uh, so my mother was famously an optimist about a lot of things, and she always believed we could come together and solve our problems. But she was really alarmed at the time that she died. And so she was working on this book for a year because she was so concerned about things that had not happened yet, 
But since they did happen, we can all understand them. I mean, she the first line of the book is that she fears that the uh, the the American experiment is in danger of failing. And this was that was written in like 2018. Uh, before there was uh, an insurrection at the Capitol and a president that denied an election, before the murder of George Floyd, before the pandemic, um, she she wanted to write a book to say, if we don't start making government work better, uh, our very democracy could be at risk. So she was really alarmed, and we shared that alarm and saw the book as important and needing to be completed. It took us a long time to do it because the, the, the ambition of the book was so great. She wanted to talk about American history from, from, from Philadelphia, from, from the uh, Constitutional Convention in 1789, all the way through uh, American history and, and how different partisan groups have sometimes been able to come together in coalitions and sometimes led to the Civil War. She wanted to write about economics, political science. So it took us three years to get her whole vision complete and out into the public while the world was changing in ways that, that made some of the things that she said seem, seem obvious uh, or, or prescient. So, so when, 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 I, when I looked at the treatment for the book, uh, and I, I'll be honest, I haven't had a chance to read it all yet, but I definitely have read the treatment uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, do you do you feel the Trump phenomenon gave your mom pause, gave her alarm uh, about this democratic experiment that is the United States of America? Well, you have to give that question two answers. One is she charts the decline of our democracy and the, de- the decline of functioning Congress and the breakout of what she calls hyperpartisan warfare. She tried, charts that all the way back to the signing of the Civil Rights Act, basically, and, and even earlier than that. But there are these different factions that move through our politics, and things were getting worse and worse and worse. And if you roll the clock back to before Trump ever got here, you're in the Obama administration with the Tea Party and all the uh, countdown clocks to a shutdown, and was the government going to default? And and the government was shut down, and 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 all of that. So that you know, Trump, the the system was broken before Trump got here, but Trump made it worse. Trump crossed a whole lot of lines that 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 we talk about in the book, in the section we write an afterward where we say what would Alice have said, and she wouldn't have saw the need to say we settle our differences with logic and reason and facts and evidence and votes and counting the votes. We don't settle our differences with violence. Well, right now that needs to be said, and it needs to be said in the age of Trump. I mean, that's when that line was crossed. And the whole denial of truth, the whole effort to undermine expertise and to have propaganda took us to places that are beyond. So the system was broken before Trump got here, but Trump made it far worse and made it existential. So uh, you, you got my ears to ringing. You said that that her belief was that uh, much of the divide, much of the brokenness started with the signing of the Civil Rights Act. Talk to us a little bit more about that. So people look at both the Great Society uh, and the New Deal periods when FDR was president and when Johnson was president as the period when a great amount of progressive legislation got passed. And they think that's because uh, there were such large Democratic majorities 
that you could pass laws like that then. That's not really how either of those periods play out. There were these uh, Southern Democrats who were segregationists, and they were making sure that segregation was part of, uh, of every law that was passed. And that, that faction within the Democratic Party had to be worked around. So most of the, the, the really progressive legislation like Social Security and all the New Deal programs uh, were passed with bipartisan coalitions uh, that included moderate Republicans and progressive Democrats to work around the Southern Democrats. Well, when you get to the 1960s and Johnson is president and he picks up uh, Kennedy's uh, uh, position on civil rights and puts it into an act, he had to work around those same Southern Democrats who tried to fill it, who did filibuster it. The, the filibuster was broken with Republican votes, and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were passed as bipartisan legislation. There were more Democratic votes against both those bills than Republican uh, votes. And what Johnson said when the Civil Rights Act was passed, we've, we, the Democrats, have just lost the South for a generation. Well, he was right but not about the length of time. The Democrats lost the South for, until now with, the, with Reverend Warnock. Uh, uh, finally, the Democrats can say they're making real inroads into the South. But that faction were, either became by changing party or were, were replaced by uh, representatives and senators. The conservative Southern Democrats were replaced by conservative Southern Republicans that made up the Reagan coalition that we still have today. And then that energy is what we saw uh, uh, on the Capitol steps and inside the Capitol on January 6th. I, I love politics. Uh, I love presidential history. Uh, my son and I, my son, who, who's, I guess, taken up that, uh, that part of uh, uh, my legacy, we have some great discussions about this. And we were actually watching a documentary the other night uh, on Jimmy Carter. Uh, and and one of the things that was interesting to me is, you know, there was a time when Republicans and Democrats would fight on the floor, Congress, all day and all night long. But when it was all said and done, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, they'd get together for a drink and a cigar and they'd play cards and talk about their families. They, they were legitimately friends. Uh, today, as I, as I look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy, and then on the other side, Pelosi and Schumer, man, these people really don't like each other. Uh, and they say some of the worst things about each other, and not only about each other, but about their constituent base. I, I don't know. What, what did your, how, did, how did your mother think we could overcome this partisan divide? Well, okay, now you're asking the big questions, which you need the whole book to answer. Because Alice tells her experiences in that time and being there when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan uh, were finding common ground. Uh, because they were able to have a drink together uh, after a, a day of fighting. Um, and, and she does talk about how uh, culturally uh, Washington has changed and how um, most of the members don't live in Washington. They live in their districts and just come in for, for a four-day work week. 
and they don't bring their families here. And so their families don't play on the same soccer team uh, on, on different sides of the aisle. So that's part of the change. But we also have a, a whole section in the book that's about the political science here. And uh, there's Frances Lee wrote a book where she brings up the idea that, that when the two sides are far apart, the Democrats were really in control of both sides of Congress going back to the Eisenhower administration. And the Republicans didn't really think they had a chance to win. So they cooperate and they try to affect legislation. Well, once 1980 happened, and this group of, of Southern Republicans got elected to the Senate, and uh, a, a couple of them switched parties from Democrat to Republican to, to give a Senate majority to Ronald Reagan. And Newt Gingrich started saying, oh, I can win the House if I uh, keep fighting for it. That's when the nastiness came in and the, per, the perpetual campaign and the two sides always uh, being in a, in a place where they feel that the next election they could win. And we've been in that place now for the past uh, 20, 30 years. It has caused what, 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 what political scientists call the, the, the rise of negative, negative partisan affect, which is what we've just seen on our television screen uh, for the past six months, which is just the two sides trying to, to bring down the favorability of the other side, not running uh, in many cases on any kind of positive message, just saying, if you elect the other side, it's doomsday. You know, life as we know it will be over. Uh, Armageddon. Uh, and both sides have created a large base of people that hate one or the other of the parties more than they've created a base of people that, that love one or the other of the parties. So why does consensus matter? Ah, Consensus matters because it's the only way to actually get anything done. We have uh, the research of political scientists, again, including uh, uh, Francis Lee, who looked at all the bills that passed Congress and got signed into law by the president, and how many votes were there from the minority party on each one. Uh, so this is when Democrats are in control, when Republicans are in control, and, and sometimes with divided government. Almost all, most of the bills that pass pass with a majority. Uh, sorry, pass with a majority in one party, but with substantial votes from the other party. It's only when the two sides come together and reach agreement that we actually get things through Congress. The exceptions are the things we all know about: the Republican tax cuts under Bush and Trump, and passing Obamacare with just Democratic votes. But really. That's very rare that that happens. It gets all the attention of the news because they love conflict. But when other bills pass with bipartisan agreement, they get less news, like the big infrastructure bill that passed last year. Philly's favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. You're listening to Philly's Favor 100.7 FM, and we're talking to Alan Rivlin, who is the co-author of the brand new book, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Again, uh, just to reframe the conversation, uh, Alan's mother, Alice Rivlin, began writing this book. And unfortunately, she passed away before the book was completed. But Alan and his wife, Sherry, finished the book, and it was released in October. Uh, and we've been having a great conversation about it so far. Let's talk uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, 
obviously a product of the political structure of Washington, D.C., has probably uh, had more experience than most uh, sitting in that uh, congressional house. Everybody was worried about his age going into the presidency. But I've got to tell you, as I evaluate his first two years, I absolutely believe he has done a fantastic job of trying to find consensus even in the noise of this partisan divide. He's been able to get past legislation to help businesses through the pandemic, been able to get uh, the CARES Act uh, passed through Congress. Uh, uh, He's been able to navigate these political waters and actually do what I think folks were supposed to come to Washington to do, which is help the people. What would your mother think of Joe Biden's performance as president so far? My mother was a fan of Joe Biden all along. Uh, She uh, particularly talked about him as uh, the negotiator for the Democrats in all of those budget battles of the Obama years. And uh, and, uh, I want to talk about the lame duck bill that he helped negotiate uh, after 2010. But first, let's talk about him right now. I don't understand why Democrats are not a lot more enthusiastic about Joe Biden, because I completely agree with everything you just said about his first two years in office. And people have gotten so pessimistic about the big divisions in our country. And Joe Biden ran to try to heal those divisions. That's what he said he was going to do. And then he said he was going to try to pass bipartisan legislation. And he got all kinds of criticism from the Republicans, which you would expect. But he got criticism from the Democrats, too. They said he was naive to try to uh, make deals with the Republicans. But he and and so there was a two track strategy followed. One was Democrats only. And that one kind of got bogged down in a standoff between the moderates and the progressives. Uh, At the same time, structure bill. Real quick, uh, Manchin and Cinema became uh, two of the most powerful people in Washington, D.C., because of exactly what you just said. Well, and so Alice would have criticized Manchin and Cinema, and she would have criticized the progressives. She would have said, both of you are, are missing a huge opportunity to get some things done. Find the, the middle ground. Instead of doing the whole bill, do half of it or something like that. But get to agreement quickly, because... You, you can't stay in standoff. And so it's this, it, that's not bipartisan standoff, that's partisan standoff. That's right. But it turned out that it was just as hard or harder to get 50 out of 50 Democrats to agree to anything than it was to get 60 out of 100 senators. And so they got more done following the bipartisan path than they got done following the Democrats-only path. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you you wanted to talk about the 2010 lame duck uh, bill. Why don't you talk about that real quick? Absolutely. I want to say that the lame duck session of 2010 was considered the most productive lame duck session ever. And the only thing that could rival it would be what's possible in 2022. That's why it's so important to understand what happened in 2010. So right after the Tea Party got elected and swept the Republicans into control of both chambers of the House. The the Democrats had had control, uh, but then the Republicans got control. Everyone was depressed, but Barack Obama saw an opportunity. 
And he and Joe Biden uh, entered immediately into a discussion with Mitch McConnell, especially, and John Boehner for the Republicans. And they negotiated uh, what Obama gave away was he allowed them to extend the Bush tax cuts for two more years. That's what the Republicans wanted. But in exchange for that, he got an extension of unemployment benefits. He got reductions in the payroll tax. He got a $1,000 per child tax credit, uh, college tuition tax credits, expansion of the earned income tax credit, the EITC, which helped so many of the working poor. Uh, they ended Don't Ask, Don't Tell and allowed gays to serve openly in the military. And there was a new start arms control agreement that they reached. Um, they didn't get uh, the Dreamers or anything on immigration. And they had extended those Bush tax cuts. So a lot of progressives criticized it for uh, being a, a tax, uh, tax break for the rich. But it was a very productive session of bipartisan negotiation. And both Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell were the, the, the sort of lead people. So one can imagine that, that they know how, how, what's it possible in 2022. And do you think they'll be successful? I think there's real reason for optimism that McConnell will be willing to uh, repeat the achievement. The, the Democrats will have to offer something that, that he wants, and I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I think he wants this Electoral Count Act passed. That's the thing that Donald Trump tried to exploit in his coup to try to change the results of the election, to get state legislatures to uh, overturn the, the state of uh, electors and the Electoral College. The Electoral Count Act that they're talking about, and I think M McConnell is negotiating on, is something that, that could pass. And I hope they, they roll the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act into that to protect democracy. Republicans, as I said, have always been reliable votes for voting rights. They need to uh, be challenged to, to be as good as that rhetoric. Um, it looks like they're moving on a Respect for Marriage Act, which would allow people to marry whoever they want in any state in, in the nation. And they have to pass a budget bill, which will probably include Ukraine funding. They can, eat, they can kick that into the next year, but they really could pass an omnibus budget and, and, and fund the whole government uh, until the end of the fiscal year, which would really take that off. And then there's the, the Defense Authorization Act that I think both parties want to work together on. There's a bunch of things they could do, um, but that's what I think they, there's a, a real agreement that they, sh they will do. So let's talk about what happened last Tuesday before we break. There was the prediction of a red wave. And, and, and if you looked at history, right, uh, in the midterm of most presidents, there is a wave from the opposition party. Uh, in this case, I think it was a red trinkle. And as much as, yes, the Republicans are going to regain the House, but, but they're already fighting over who's going to be the speaker. And I got to tell you, I absolutely believe somebody else is going to emerge other than Kevin McCarthy, because I don't think he's ever going to get the support uh, of some of his colleagues in the House. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, but the Democrats have been able to hold on to the Senate, and more than likely, if Warnock wins, will have uh, gained a seat in the Senate. And of course, we still have the White House. Uh, what would your mother think of what happened in these midterm elections? Uh, and then what would you what do you and your wife think? <laughs> well, um, 
my mother would actually defer that question to me because I have 30 years as a pollster. Okay. And uh, so she would say, I don't know, Alan, what do you think? Uh, but we would just completely agree with you that this was a very important election for the idea of our democracy and the idea that truth and reason, not thuggery, should rule this nation. And uh, what we saw in this was everybody's theory. I've gone into the data of this election and really looked at, at what the pollsters are saying. Everyone's theory proved out. The, um, the undercurrent of women, of Democrats, independents, and Republican women, especially young women, coming out to vote for uh, reproductive rights after the Dobbs decision was absolutely there. And it shows up in the data. And also, the idea of uh, voting to protect uh, democracy and the truth, voting against the truth-denying uh, election deniers and uh, that are undermining our democracy. There's a lot of ticket splitting, and you can see it right there in, in Pennsylvania, where Shapiro beat Mastriano by a lot more than Fetterman beat Oz. Now, Oz was a conservative Republican, and, and he's not my... He would not be my idea of a good uh, uh, senator from Pennsylvania, but he wasn't an outright election denier. He was Trump-endorsed, but he wasn't too Trumpy. Uh, Mastriano was. He was there at the uh, January 6th insurrection, and Shapiro beat him by a lot. But that pattern shows up all across the country. The, the Republicans didn't do as well as expected, but especially the election-denying Republicans uh, did poorly, and people voted up and down the ballot. They, they uh, defended democracy in those uh, secretary of state races, in those state legislative races. Uh, so it was a very good day for democracy and a very good day for Joe Biden. I think it really shows that his brand of leadership is, is quiet, but it is steady. And uh, he's sort of the grandfather all of America wants right now. What do you think about a second term? Uh, that's for him to decide. But if he wants to run for it, uh, I would back him and uh, my my wife would and and my mother, rest in peace, would uh, would certainly be smiling upon it. If he decides he's too old, then I think there are a lot of other people who can take his place. But uh, he's earned a second term and I don't think he's too old. Uh, I hope I'm uh, effective at 80. And I know a lot of people who uh, who, who believe they could be. Absolutely. Well, Alan Rivlin, Sherry Rivlin, who's sitting right beside you, thank you for completing your mother's work. Uh, the book is Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Uh, why don't you share with our Phillies' favorite listeners where they can get the book? Anywhere books are sold, uh, check your independent bookseller or go on one of those national behemoths. We're, we're right there uh, uh, on all the big bookselling websites. Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Philly's favorite listeners, I always say this, uh, a educated constituent base makes the right decisions. Get this book. Get this book, and let's support Alan and Sherry as they've completed the work uh, of their mother and mother-in-law, Alice Rivlin. Alan, thank you for joining us today in the pastor's office. We really appreciate it. I thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Let's take a little time and talk now About the state that we are living in mm. Political, spiritual, maybe some lies While you are listening to Phyllis Faber yeah. Take a minute, turn the radio yeah. up 
Jonathan Mason.